Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening and happy Tuesday to my Murder Bucket family. Welcome to another episode. Tonight, we will be discussing the missing Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. But before we get started, let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. Last Thursday was Thanksgiving, or Turkey Day, or Gobble Gobble Day, or Eat Till You Just Want to Take a Nap on the Floor Day, or, you know, whatever you call Thanksgiving. I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, or a quiet Thanksgiving, or maybe a loud Thanksgiving if you have a large family. I had a fantastic Thanksgiving. We started out by waking up early, making breakfast, and then, of course, watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And then we went over to our family friend's house that watches our daughter because Anytime that we are in town for any sort of holiday, we always go to their house. So as soon as we get over there, we jump into helping them cook food. And we honestly just help with anything that still needs to be done to get ready for the meal. And then we just wait for a few other people to show up. We watch some of the dog show, which of course we watch every year. But then... Of course, the boys turned on the football game, and so that flew out the window, and I had to look up who won the dog show, which, surprise, surprise, the same dog as last year won this year, but did you know that that is the first time ever in dog show history that the same dog has won two consecutive years? Crazy, right? Probably not that interesting. I thought it was interesting. So then we move on to eating so much food that you can't move anymore. Our daughter eats technically her first real Thanksgiving food because last year she just had baby food and formula. So she had peas and corn, turkey, sweet potato mash, and, you know, everything. Then we move on to lounging in the living room, watching more football. And every year at their house on Thanksgiving, they always decorate their family Christmas tree. And of course, we always help. So that's what we did. And then we stayed there until I think either 1030 or 1130 at night. And went home, had a wonderful night's sleep, and hung out and did random things this weekend that, honestly, I can't remember all that we did. So I won't go into the boring details. Instead, let's just go ahead and move into tonight's episode. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport 
in Selinger, Malaysia on March 8, 2014 at 12.42 a.m. local Malaysia time with a total of 227 passengers and 12 crew members. Its final destination was Beijing Capital International Airport in the northeast area of Beijing's city center. It was expected to arrive at 6.30 a.m. local Beijing time. At 1.07 a.m., the aircraft's communication system sends a transmission. According to a statement from Malaysia's Ministry of Transport, it showed nothing unusual. It showed a normal routing all the way to Beijing. At 1.19 a.m., when the flight was over the South China Sea, Malaysia Air Traffic Control instructed the flight crew to contact the next air traffic control center in Vietnam. The captain replied, Good night, Malaysian 370. This would be the last voice contact anyone had with the flight. At 1.21 a.m., the transponder stopped functioning. According to Google.com, an aircraft's transponder is an electric device on aircrafts that transmits a four-digit code which allows the aircraft to be identified by air traffic control. The pilot enters the four-digit code assigned to them by air traffic control into this transponder, which identifies the aircraft on the radar screen. When it stopped responding, this caused it to also disappear from air traffic control's secondary radar. CNN aviation and airline correspondent Richard Quest is quoted in an article on CNN.com saying, Now the plane is flying blind from the ground's point of view. If there is radar there, the radar will see a blip, but they won't know who it is or where they're going. They will just know that it's there. Turning off the transponder is a simple turn of a switch in the cockpit. At this time, another aircraft attempts to contact Flight 370, but only mumbling and radio static are heard in reply. The Thai military is still able to track the plane's signal until it disappears from their radar at 1.22 a.m. But then, at 1.28 a.m., a Thai radar station located in Surathani province gets a signal from an unknown aircraft that is flying in the opposite direction to how Flight 370 had been traveling. It's believed that between 1.20 a.m. and 1.28 a.m., the aircraft changed course. The Malaysian government, however, has never stated if the plane was reprogrammed to fly off course. The Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System, also known as the ACARS, which is a digital data link system for transmission of short messages between aircraft and ground stations, is supposed to transmit a signal every half hour. Its next transmission was supposed to occur at 1.37 a.m., but it didn't. It stopped working sometime between 1.07 a.m. and 1.37 a.m. Richard Quest states that being able to turn off the ACARS takes some serious know-how. He goes on to state that if the flight were hijacked or a target of terrorism, 
cutting off the ACARS would be a strategic move because the system reports to satellites anything abetting done to the aircraft. According to a Malaysian Air Force official, military radar was able to track the plane at 2.15 a.m. as it passed over a small island in the Strait of Malacca. The plane is now hundreds of miles off course. It showed that the plane flew in a westerly direction back over the Malaya Peninsula. This would be the very last time any civilian or military radar was able to track the aircraft. Richard Quest told a reporter for CNN that the Malaysian military handed over its raw radar data to U.S. and British officials and called this a huge development in the case because normally they don't want anyone to know how good their radar is, and obviously this didn't matter. At 2.40 a.m., Malaysian air traffic controllers finally told Malaysia Airlines that Flight 370 was missing from its radar. The airlines tried every possible form of communication to locate its whereabouts before declaring that it had lost contact with the aircraft. Malaysia Airlines Dispatch Center sends a message to the cockpit instructing the pilots to contact the Vietnam Air Traffic Control, but of course there was no response. A ground-to-aircraft data request was transmitted from the ground station multiple times, but was never acknowledged by the aircraft's satellite data unit. At 3.45 a.m., Malaysia Airlines issues a code red alert that the plane was missing from radar. According to the airlines, a code red is when it declares that a crisis requires immediate deployment of emergency response planes. The reason it took the airlines over an hour to issue this code red is because they wanted to exhaust all options to verify that the plane was truly missing. On wikipedia.com, it states that the aircraft's satellite data unit replied to five hourly automated status requests between 3.41 a.m. and 8.10 a.m. and two unanswered ground-to-aircraft telephone calls. At 6.30 a.m., the aircraft should have landed at Beijing Capital International Airport, but never arrived. Malaysia Airlines made a public announcement at 7.24 a.m. that Flight 370 was missing after contact was lost with air traffic control. At 8.19, the SDU sent what is called a logon request to establish a satellite data link followed by the final transmission from Flight 370 eight seconds later. Investigators believe that at 8.19 a.m., messages were made between the time of fuel exhaustion and the time that the aircraft entered the ocean. Now, let's go over the events that occurred during the long search efforts after the flight disappeared. On March 9th, the Chief General of the Royal Malaysian Air Force made an announcement that the government was analyzing the radar recordings. They believed that there was a possibility that the aircraft turned around and started traveling over the Andaman Sea between Indonesia and Thailand. 
They began their searches in the area between the Tho Chu Island and the Strait of Malacca. More than 40 aircrafts and over two dozen vessels were involved in the search by the end of the day. No debris was found. On March 10th, it was confirmed by the Royal Malaysian Air Force that the aircraft had in fact turned around. On March 11th, China activated the International Charter on Space and Major Disaster to look at satellite data that might aid in the search. This was a 15-member organization, and their main purpose was to provide a unified system of space state acquisition and deliver to those affected by natural or man-made disasters. This was the first time it was ever used to search for an aircraft. The Malaysian government then mobilized its Civilian Aviation Department, Air Force, Navy, and Maritime Enforcement Agencies. They then requested international assistance under five power defense arrangement provisions. This is a series of bilateral defense relationships established by a series of multilateral agreements between the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, and Singapore. These countries dispatched more than 34 aircrafts and 40 ships to the area to help with the search. Malaysian police made an announcement on March 11th that two of the passengers aboard the aircraft were using stolen passports but were believed to be seeking asylum. Their tickets both ended in Frankfurt, Germany. On March 12th, Malaysian officials publicly announced that an unidentified aircraft was last located by military radar in the Andaman Sea. The search efforts shifted there and the Malaysian government requested help from India. By March 17th, Australia, Bangladesh, Brunei, Cambodia, China, France, India, Indonesia, Japan, Myanmar, New Zealand, Norway, the Philippines, Russia, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Vietnam were now assisting in the search. Sri Lanka also gave permission for search aircrafts to use its airspace. There were now over 60 ships and 50 aircrafts working in the search efforts. In March, the Wall Street Journal published an article stating that the aircraft continued to fly for several hours after it was last seen by air traffic control, citing undisclosed U.S. investigators. White House spokesman Jay Carney states during a press conference, that the search area may be opened in the Indian Ocean after new information has been received. Australia then agrees to lead the search along the southern corridor in the southern Indian Ocean. They conducted their first aerial search on March 18th. The search area was determined by the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board and is roughly 230,000 square miles in size. The search area was later revised to 118,000 square miles. Several merchant ships have now joined in the search. 
Malaysia's prime minister made an announcement at a press conference on March 24th that they are certain that the aircraft went down in the southern Indian Ocean with no survivors. He went on to state that the search area has now been narrowed to the southern part of the Indian Ocean to the west and southwest of Australia. Before his announcement, he held a private meeting in Beijing for the relatives of the missing passengers and crew members and told them that there were no survivors. Many of those families were notified either in person, via telephone, and some through text messages. Can you even imagine being informed through a text message that your relative is more than likely dead? Because of this, well over 200 relatives of the passengers and crew members staged a protest on March 25th outside the Malaysian embassy in Beijing. While there, they chanted, Liars! And tell the truth! Return our relatives! At the end of March, Malaysia announced that an international panel will be formed to investigate the incident. In the month of April, an acoustic search began. This was to detect acoustic signals generated by underwater locator beacons that were attached to the flight records. Typically, after the beacons are immersed in water, they will emit a signal, also called a ping, once per second, and they normally have a battery life of around 30 to 40 days. Several vessels, including a submarine, tried to locate the signal unsuccessfully until April 14th when they all detected several different pings. After further analysis, these pings were determined to not match the characteristics of the locator beacons from the aircraft. On April 28th, the Australian Prime Minister stated that any debris is now more than likely waterlogged and has probably sunk to the bottom of the ocean. During the search efforts in April, 29 aircrafts from seven different countries conducted 334 search flights and 14 ships conducted their own searches. The search continues for the whereabouts of the aircraft without any debris found between April 2014 and June of 2015. It wasn't until on July 28, 2015, that a piece of debris was found on an island in the western Indian Ocean that resembled an aircraft component. The object found was confirmed to be a flapperon from a Boeing 777. A flapperon on an aircraft's wing is a type of control surface that combines the functions of flaps and ailerons. On August 5th, Malaysia's Prime Minister confirms that it is in fact a piece from the aircraft. On August 6th, they also claimed that a window pane and a seat cushion washed up on the island as well. This claim, however, was disputed by France. On September 3rd, French investigators made the second confirmation that the first debris found was in fact from the aircraft. In May of 2016, a wing fragment was found in Mauritius. A part identifier was legible on the piece and officials determined that it did in fact belong to the aircraft. In June of 2016, 
a wing flap was found in Tanzania, and in September, Malaysia's transport ministry confirmed that it belonged to the aircraft due to identifying the part numbers and date stamps. Four other pieces of debris were located between December 2015 and March of 2016 that are highly likely to belong to the aircraft but have been unable to be 100% confirmed. On January 17, 2017, the underwater search for any remaining wreckage of Flight 370 was officially suspended. The search efforts cost well over $160 million. Now, let's go over the many theories that are out there as to what happened to Flight 370. Was it possible passenger involvement? Now, I mentioned earlier that two passengers were on board the aircraft with stolen passports. This obviously raised suspicion immediately. Malaysia's Prime Minister did criticize his country's immigration department for failing to stop the passengers from traveling with stolen passports. The two passengers were identified as Iranian men that came to Malaysia on February 28th using valid passports. The Secretary General of Interpol concluded that the disappearance of the aircraft was not a terrorist incident. U.S. and Malaysian officials also reviewed the backgrounds of every single passenger and it ruled out that there were any possibility that there was any involvement in destruction or terrorist attacks. Could this have been crew involvement? U.S. officials believe that someone in the cockpit reprogrammed the aircraft's autopilot to force it to travel across the Indian Ocean. Authorities searched the homes of both pilots and seized financial records for all 12 crew members. Malaysian Police Inspector General stated in April of 2014 that there had been over 170 interviews conducted with the family members of the pilots and the crew. The FBI reconstructed deleted data that was found on one of the pilots' home flight simulators. They found a route that closely matched the projected flight over the Indian Ocean. In 2018, the sister of the pilot stated that the route found on the simulator showed nothing negative and that there were seven manually programmed waypoint coordinates that, when connected together, would create a flight path similar to the possible flight path of the aircraft. And the final theory is, could there have been a problem with the cargo? According to several websites, the aircraft was carrying 23,000 pounds of cargo. 10,000 pounds of the cargo were four unit-load devices full of mangosteens. Mangosteen is a tropical evergreen tree with edible fruit that is native to land surrounding the Indian Ocean. 487 pounds of the cargo were lithium-ion batteries. Officials from Malaysia's Federal Agricultural Marketing Authority inspected the mangosteens before they were loaded onto the aircraft, and they were all questioned to rule out any sabotage. The batteries were packaged in accordance with the IATA guidelines and were not regulated as dangerous goods. 
Now, lithium-ion batteries can cause intense fires if they overheat. This has led to strict regulations on their transport aboard aircrafts. Several airlines have stopped carrying bulk shipments of lithium-ion batteries on passenger aircrafts, citing several safety concerns. The disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 has been described as one of the biggest mysteries in modern aviation history. This has led to documentaries to be produced, such as the Smithsonian's Channel's one-hour documentary titled Malaysia 370, The Plane That Vanished, and the Discovery Channel's one-hour documentary titled Flight 370, The Missing Links. Mayday, which is an aviation disaster documentary, produced an episode titled What Happened to Malaysian 370. The creator of the NBC show Manifest stated that after he pitched his idea for the show without any success, the disappearance led to the network's sudden interest. The podcast Stuff You Should Know released a two-part episode discussing the case in January of 2020, and the podcast Black Box Down, which details aviation accidents, covered the case in June of 2020. So now that all of this information has been presented to you, I would like to know what your theories are as to what happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Could a passenger have taken over the plane and tried to fly it somewhere else, but then ran out of fuel and the flight landed in the Indian Ocean? Did a crew member decide that they wanted to take over the airlines and try and fly it somewhere else and possibly ran out of fuel? Was the cargo in the plane not tied down correctly and the lithium-ion batteries caught fire? Or did the plane just miraculously disappear without any evidence, except for the three confirmed pieces that had been found? Let me know what your thoughts are on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Before we end tonight's podcast, let's take a moment of silence to remember the 239 people that were lost on Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. And that concludes tonight's episode. Thank you for joining us. Please enjoy this promo from my friends at Rainbow Crimes Podcast. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. My episodes focus on crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. I've covered cases you probably have heard of, such as Matthew Shepard, Brandon Tina, and the Orlando Pulse nightclub massacre, as well as some lesser-known cases like the murder of Ray Hainish, the Australian gay beat murders, and the suspicious disappearance of Lisa Lynn Stone. I cover cases brought to me by listeners like Penny Brummer, who I believe was wrongfully convicted. Taboo cases such as lesbian corrective rape and murder in South Africa and Pray the Gay Away camps. I discuss gay serial killers, women who pretend to be men to hook up with other women 
and trans murders. I'm opinionated and uncensored. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but surely I'm someone shot at tequila. No matter what your gender or orientation in life might be, please join me as I tackle rainbow crimes in search of unicorn justice. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurderBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.